Hi, everybody. Welcome to another uh, session of Orthopod. Today, we're in conversation with a Dr. Harsha Shantana, who is the Associate Chair of Research and Associate Professor in the Department of Anesthesia at McMaster University. Harsha, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much, Mo. So, Harsha, you've um, done some very interesting work and you've led some inter interesting international work, and I'm going to let you go ahead and explain it. But fundamentally, you have been looking at COVID-19 guidance for pain management and specifically providing some specific um, important best practices based on evidence. And I wonder if you could kind of share that um, with us and give us a synopsis of what it is you found and what are some of the key findings. Yes, um, thank you. What has happened is COVID, as we know, has changed the entire situation around the world very dramatically. And the need of the hour is changing almost every hour or every day. And chronic pain population um, are substantial in, in many parts of the world. And they have their own challenges, frustrations, and they're actually very complicated patients because they have multiple comorbidities. Most of them are elderly and they need someone to really take them out or do something um, even for activity wise. And what we realized was that there is no um, guidance on physicians who care for these patients. And it was essential that we give some directions or suggestions as to how physicians can handle these patients and continue their care for these patients. So it started off with actually a interesting Twitter chat with uh, you know the upcoming uh, ASRA president, Samir Naroz, who is the other senior author in the team at the end. And uh, then it led into a sort of uh, interesting discussion from different experts around the world where we thought, you know what, we had to really come together and make this a document that comes out and provides guidance. So it started from that. And uh, if you show the uh, paper there, I think it'll highlight that we have um, representation from different parts of the world and we came together to kind of uh, see what are the main themes uh, or challenges that go with this population of patients. And uh, we've kind of dwelled on the important themes, uh, such as what makes them susceptible, you know, what could be the challenges, such as how do you manage opioids, um, what are the recommendations on anti-inflammatories, which was kind of all over and similarly also procedures, which we highlight in this document. Superb. So in your key findings then were? So the key findings were that presently we don't have a guidance and this was needed to fill that gap. So starting from there, we went into literature to see if previous SARS um, epidemic or pandemic had any sort of uh, information for us to apply it in this situation. And again, unfortunately, um, we didn't find a guidance document, but there were several some you know, important uh, information which we could put together to you know, inform practice now. For example, um, as we all know, the contagiousness of this virus is you know, huge. It, it really is very infectious, but it is uh, in terms of fatality rate, it's high with elderly and patients with comorbidity. And it's important that we highlight with this chronic pain population because they tend to have all these features. 
And moreover, um, they are on opioids and opioids in particular have a particular effect on immunosuppression, especially when taken on long-term. So they're more susceptible in that way. And in addition, many of them get steroid injections. Uh, for example, in the SARS uh, epidemic, it was found that patients who have steroid injections to their knee joints are more susceptible for influenza. Um, that was a very important uh, point we highlighted. And secondly, um, many patients still could be on either oral or systemic steroids in this population. Uh, for example, maybe generalized arthritis such as rheumatoid arthritis or even uh, simple injections. Um, for them, it is important to note that during the SARS epidemic, there were significant uh, population which are affected by um, osteoporosis and osteonecrosis of hip joints, for example, because of increased steroid therapy in an effect to counter the virus effects or patho pathological effects. And I think at this point in time, we really don't know what are the effects of steroids with regards to COVID population. Although COVID is supposed to cause hyperimmune effects in one of its sort of uh, pathological uh, entities. So, so let me ask you this. Let me ask you one question, if I could just interject. You know, one issue we're seeing, Harsha, is that you know um, most elective procedures are being uh, canceled, or let's say canceled for me, but held off, right? So we're we're trying to minimize any sort of exposure to patients, especially in the hospital environment. So for let's say for chronic pain treatments that many orthopedic surgeons, many physiotherapists in our group uh, in our network are dealing with, non-operative treatment becomes paramount. For knee arthritis, intraarticular injections are very very common. Is there any guidance based on what you're saying? I mean, steroid injections are very common. Um, HA injections are very common, and people are doing all kinds of other PRP injections have been. Would this guidance, would, would this provide broad guidance for what should be happening in that population of patients? Should they be receiving injections? Should they not be? Uh, should we be concerned about the steroid in the knee as being a possible propagator of even um, you know more uh, challenges for that patient for immune system? I mean, I'm just gonna get a sense from you to bring it to the orthopedic population if possible. Yes, I think it is very relevant now, thank you. Now, first of all, we emphasize that um, telemedicine takes an important part in care in this scenario. So um, we start with uh, call the patient so that you have continuity and establish whether there is a need for an in-person visit and avoid as much as possible if that need not be done. And in extreme situations, we do highlight some emergency procedures. Of course, I think knee joint injection may not come in that. Uh, for right. example, the urgent are intrathecal back open refills. Um, right. But talking specific to say a procedure such as knee injection, which could still be very helpful for a patient even to move around the house, uh, right. we, we suggest uh, minimize the time you spend with the patient. If at all, you're still able to do it. So, for example, at our setting, what we're doing or what we're planning to do next week is uh, we are having a very short injection day, procedure day, and we are calling patients, have them sit in their car in the parking lot, establish everything, including how are you today, what are you going to do, and this is what we're going to do. They come in for five minutes just to get the procedure and go back home. And just highlighting some important aspects from literature about the choice of medication. 
Um, in a very recent randomized controlled trial, it was shown that dexamethasone has a less duration of immunosuppressant effect when compared to methylprednisone. And, and typically people use omedrol because it got a depot preparation, but I think it's better to choose dexamethasone and the shortest or smallest dose possible. Oh, fascinating. Okay, um, I'll let you continue on because I know I know you were um, you were you were providing more guidance, but I just wanted to, to raise that point because I know for many practicing um, physicians, you know, uh, managing arthritis often you know comes from non-operative treatments, but also brings in the issue of injectables, and that's extremely sage advice. Thank you. Yes, thank you. So th that is what we emphasize, and I think um, people there's also a question of how about this biopsychosocial management? Because what happens in this scenario is pain gets exacerbated, not because there is an um, actual surge of pain stimulus, but also because pain goes with depression, pain goes with isolation, pain goes with and you know um, suffering and uh, frustration of I can't do anything. So this is happening right now uh, in in many houses because. You know, they live on their own and they can't go out, they're socially isolated. So what we're trying to emphasize also the aspect is there are telehealth programs which allow you to do um, multiple physicians talking to patients and emphasizing on a healthy lifestyle, uh, exercise as much as possible, and even yoga or other biopsychosocial uh, sort of uh, modalities which will on their own can increase the level of functioning to the patient, even if the pain does not come down significantly. I think that is very important because we want to also limit patients going back to opioids, which people use for various things, including depression. Would you say that given the fact that we have been somewhat, I would say, as a community, um, and certainly nationally, if not internationally, forced into this concept of virtual meeting status, do you think that it has in some ways helped you manage patients? Um, you brought up a very important issue, which I think uh, you know we aren't addressing enough, is sort of the interdisciplinary care um, for patients at the same time. It seems to me much more facile to be able to have multiple specialties, as we're talking, together uh, with the patient on a screen and being able to give real-time information. That should be happening face-to-face, -face, but we don't see that in the same magnitude and it seems to me opportunities with this platform and this approach may in fact lead us to do more things that way. How have you found this whole virtual uh, conferencing or telehealth um, as advantage, disadvantage or where do you see its strengths? Yes, so the challenges before were a little kind of different uh, perspectives. Uh, one was the aspect of, you know, I've never got trained. Uh, what are the logistics? I can't see the patient. Um, right. I, th I think what has happened now is this whole scenario has pushed the healthcare to, you know what, you have to provide it. You can't wait for tomorrow, you can't wait for a month. So it is happening right now. So it has opened up opportunities for many telehealth programs or startups to actually give out their products and physicians can actually trial use and the hospitals will have to make a decision in day or hours to use that. So the logistical questioning is kind of experimentation, but also gives you that you know, ability to experiment and say, you know what, I didn't really know this, I could do it. So that is one aspect of it. And the second aspect of it is the patient acceptance. 
And for even for patients, there is a lot of positive things that come with televisits. They don't have to drive the parking charges, the traffic. So as long, even studies have shown that uh, for many, many health reasons, patients when introduced to that, they would say, you know what, I would prefer rather to do this rather than come and meet you because I might be exposed to so many things or I don't want to drive, I can't pay the parking charges. So the third aspect is the billing uh, provisions. Now, it was very good that the, you know, the realization set in and they had to open up, not restrict to, for example, video conferencing alone. So that has opened up for all sorts of, you know, just call, you can still bill. So physicians or health providers were naturally concerned whether if I do it, the delivery of healthcare, whether I'll be compensated. And because of these provisions, I think some of those questions are addressed. So definitely there is a lot of opportunity to engage, learn for physicians. And simultaneously, I was speaking to the, for example, the Astra group, and they were saying, you know, how about trainees? I mean, we are not being able to train the trainees. And I said, you know, even this use of telehealth, I don't think they have a module on telehealth in pain. And this is it. This, this is a time where they will learn that, actually utilize that. So from your perspective, how, how impacted has the practice of most um, specialists who are managing pain as one of their priorities been? So have they, have they been able to flip very quickly to telehealth? Or, you know, obviously so much of the interactions are face-to-face. -face, and I see what you've discussed as having these very focused clinics that are very carefully uh, organized. That isn't the norm right now. So I would imagine what's been happening in the pain field with respect to uh, getting patients seen and how efficient has it been for you? I think, um, although I just mentioned about all the positives of telehealth, that the challenges are um, how do you select those patients? Because not all patients can engage. And some of these uh, platforms have their own requirements, such as someone has to have an email or it has right. to be secure or so these constraints require that we triage we go through the list and we you need also the personnel to do that and that can be challenging i think right now it is very difficult to know how much has been the impact of this all over in terms of how many were cared or how many were unable to be cared um, but i'm sure it will come out in in numbers in soon, um, but I think at this point in time, everybody is just opening up to the reality that it's not going to be just one month. It could be you know, two months or four months or, you know, right. so. Right, right. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the ortho evidence um, membership audience worldwide uh, around these particular guidelines? Is there any key message you want to share with, with us um, as one of our final statements? Yes. So, um, as I said, in the document that we provided, uh, we had um, a few themes that we thought were important. So one was the aspect of opioid and continuity. So um, what it is very essential that if you have a patient on opioids, um, that they are spoken to and asked about whether they need prescription refills, or if they do need, um, the reason is when we, there, we know about the opioid crisis, and uh, even in this background, we don't want to go back into the situation. Um, and that is still existing, not that we need to go back. The problem can be that without evaluation, because you can still order by phone, the pharmacist gives it, 
we have to be still be skeptical about their uses and try to minimize that and try to convince the patient that you can still consider other modalities but still continue with your prescriptions because opioid withdrawal is very dangerous and the second aspect is patients if you don't see them what will happen is they'll go on to flood the er and yep. which is what hospitals don't want and the third aspect is about use of anti-inflammatories now there's been a lot of uh, um, discussions and people have got mixed messages about what anti-inflammatories do in covid 19 because you know right. um, was that ac inhibitors and and anti-inflammatories go through the same mm -hmm. pathway and and right. they can worsen the COVID physiology in a patient. But right now there's no evidence. And what we suggest is because in a substantial number of chronic pain patients, anti-inflammatories can be helpful. It is important for them to continue. Um, whereas if you want to put someone on a new anti-inflammatory, even by phone, you got to tell them that uh, be cautious, your fever or other symptoms can be suppressed, which could be because of COVID. And that message is key. And uh, um, I think we talk about procedures. Um, there are some urgent procedures, and I am not sure if someone in the audience has patients uh, on that nature. For example, intrathecal baclofen refills. Uh, we do provide clear guidance about what to do. Um, we are coming out with more guidance on how drug concentration can be changed so that you can postpone a refill. For example, you know, baclofen or some patients in the United States have other medications so you can consider how to deal with those patients. So I think that clearly gives the message and we hope to change as things develop within the guidance statement so it'll be real time and physicians can adapt to it as well. Listen, on that note, I can't thank you enough, Harsha, for continuing to provide evidence when we're seeing so much noise in the system. And I think evidence-based practice ultimately is going to be what's going to prevail uh, and getting your message out to as many people as possible, I think, is very, very important. So thank you again uh, for spending this morning with us. I'm so thankful for you, Udmo. And as always, I'm thankful for the audience. And I hope everyone is staying safe, healthy. And it's a very fluid situation. So keep yourself and your family healthy. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much.